What about sin? We've talked about biblical brokenness, that place where our self-will is crushed, it's pulverized, and it's replaced with God's will. It's like um, being responsive to His will, and we've compared it to a rider on a horse, where the horse is so responsive to his rider because he's a broken horse, and that's what it is to be broken in Christ. I'm responsive to Him. Uh, I understand His nudges. We speak the same language and, and I'm ready to respond. And, and when I get to that place, I begin walking in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord um, is to stand in awe of Him. I stand in awe of the Lord and I'm taken by His character and His ways. Uh, I don't want to take my eyes off of Him. When I see his perfection, I hate sin. And I begin to understand how he feels about sin, and I begin to feel about sin the way he does. He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because it is a challenge to his holiness. It mars. It does not mar his holiness. It mars the revelation of his holiness to the world around us. It's kind of like um, you like to look at the sun, but sometimes it becomes covered with clouds and you can't see it. You know it's there, there are parts of it. But when we stand in awe of the Lord and then, and then we choose to compromise with sin, it misrepresents His holiness to the world. So holiness and sin are very important to God. And so I have to ask myself, how do I see sin? Um, how do I know what sin is? I, I identify with sin. I begin to recognize sin when I encounter the blazing revelation of His holiness. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and let me show you a couple of things. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Isaiah is speaking, and he says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that was about 740 B.C. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw Adonai. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The word seraphim means burning ones. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, I, Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he saw his own sin. He responded with, oh my goodness. And so he says, I am done, undone. I am devastated. I am lost. I am perishing. I'm destroyed. This is the end of me. 
to be in the presence of the holiness of God. So he was stunned. When Isaiah saw God, he knew how wretched he was. Did you ever try to match two pieces of white fabric? I've dealt with fabric some in my life, and I want to tell you something that's very hard. You think white is white, but if you've got a piece of white fabric, and maybe you've had it for a while, and you need to go back and get some more white fabric, and you bring it home, they're not alike. And you can imagine the whitest fabric that you can imagine, blazing white, and you can't find one to match it. And that's kind of what Isaiah is doing here. He had himself and he held himself up to God's holiness. And it was like, oh my goodness, this is not holy at all. It's not white at all. And so there was conviction in God's presence. Hear me, let me tell you something. Whenever we're in God's presence, there is conviction. All through scripture, you look at it and you see all of these men in scripture, uh, you know, who were, who were confronted with the presence of the Lord. And you know what they do? They fall down. They fall down. They don't high five him and say, hi, how you doing? Hey, I'll give you a call later in the day. I'll catch up with you. They fall down because they've been confronted with the true presence and the holiness of God. And when that happens, there's conviction we see how far off we are from the holiness of God. The most important instrument for a prophet like Isaiah is his mouth. And standing in the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah cried, my mouth is dirty. And then he went on, you know, it, it, you know a prophet who, who is a prophet of God has a mouth that should speak for God. And so all of a sudden he says, I have a dirty mouth and I dwell in the midst of people who have dirty mouths. All of a sudden it dawned on him. He saw that his mouth was not holy. It was not set apart for God. How did he know? How did he know? Verse five says how he knows. He says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. I have seen him, oh my goodness. Now I know what I am really like. You see, no one can encounter God's holiness without seeing his own sinfulness. So when we glibly stand up in church and sing, holy, 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 and we just think that's neat. So, <laughs> like, oh my goodness. So what I want us to do together is to begin to focus and meditate on the holiness of God. Now, the best way we can do that is to find places in scripture that describe it. Ask God to reveal it to you. Keep it on your mind. Look for it. Now, I'm intrigued with this place in Isaiah's life, and I don't know a lot about history. I'm not a theologian, but there are five chapters here before we get to chapter six. Now, I don't know the chronological order of Isaiah's life, but I'm thinking this is not the first time Isaiah has known the Lord because we've got things that God's been showing him and telling him already, and then all of a sudden one day, 
He's been called by the Lord, but here's a day when he's got this fresh revelation of God. And he sees something here that he's never seen before. And when he has this revelation of God, he sees his own sinfulness. The holiness of God reveals just how atrocious our sin is. But God didn't leave Isaiah shattered and devastated in his sin. That's the good news. What did Isaiah do? He confessed his sin. What does that take? It takes a broken and contrite heart, a humble heart, to humble myself before God and say, whoa, I am a mess. I have sinned. I'm a sinner. I've got a dirty mouth, Isaiah said. And so look at verse 6. After his confession... He says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. That, that felt good. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity, your sin is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Your sin is cleansed. There was cleansing for Isaiah. So once he saw the Lord in his holiness and once he said, woe is me, I am undone, I am, I am dirty, God cleansed him. God cleansed him. What does it take to get to the place where your sin is cleansed, really cleansed? It takes a broken and contrite heart. It takes that brokenness when we face the holiness of God, and we come humbly before God, and we agree with God about our sin, and we surrender to the things God wants. Isaiah knew that God wanted him to have a clean, holy mouth. And he confessed his sin, and God cleansed him. Look in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, Adonai, saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. So when Isaiah went, he went a cleansed man. He went with a, man, he went with a mouth that God had cleansed. He went as a man who had seen the holiness of God and he had become aware of his sin. Holiness is the sum or the composite of all of the infinite perfections of God. He is perfect in every way, in every character trait. He is perfect. His mind is perfect. His intentions are perfect. And so, you know, I don't think, I don't think we can fully understand the holiness of God. I can't. I can't fully understand the holiness of God. But we can understand some of it because of what he's told us about it in his word. Uh, scripture gives us an image of the holiness of God. Uh, what is an image? How can we call up an image of the utter and absolute distinction of God's perfection? How can we do that? You know, we can think of adjectives, pristine, a dazzling beauty, majestic splendor, blazing glory, untouchable purity, perfection, unfathomable love. We can't comprehend all of that, but we can 
recognize it and acknowledge that it exists. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11 says, God is glorious in holiness. Glorious in holiness. Now here's the question for, for me, for us, for you. How, is it, how important is holiness to you? How important is holiness to me? Is it something I think about very much? Um, there are a number of scriptures that command us to be holy. I just picked out three of them. First Peter chapter one, verses 15 through 17 says, but as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. In other words, in every part of your lifestyle. Be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse one says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We can't see the Lord. He can't really, he can't relate to us unless he makes us holy. Holy. Making us like him. Now, some translations say, Pursue sanctification. That means pursue holiness. This means be dedicated to holiness. Focus on it. Be committed to it. You know, so, so let's ask this question. How much thought and attention and effort do we devote to the pursuit of holiness? Um, do we sit around maybe in our small groups at church talking about how we can pursue holiness? how we can help each other pursue holiness, how we can be accountable to each other, how we can study scriptures together to see what it is that we can do to pursue holiness. Do we have those conversations? Are we on a mission to follow after holiness? Do I get up in the mornings and say, "Today's it. I'm doing this. Today I am pursuing holiness. Is that my lifestyle? Is that on my mind? How important is your children's holiness to you? How important is the holiness of your grandchildren? Which counts the most? Their grade point average, their batting average, um, their popularity, or the purity of heart that comes with holiness? Which do you spend the most time talking to your child about? Which do you spend the most time talking to your grandchildren about? How concerned are we about holiness in the body of Christ? Holiness in the church? How much thought do we give to that? Why does sin matter? Because we've been cleansed of it. Uh, you know, he's forgiven us. God has dealt with sin. Why does sin matter? Because sin is the enemy of holiness. They're opposites. They stand in contrast to one another. When we look at holiness, we see that there are two levels of holiness. There is positional holiness and personal holiness. Let's just clear our minds about that for a minute. 
there is positional holiness that God imparts to us when we are saved. He imparts holiness to us when we become his child. When we're saved, he declares us holy. He sets us out of darkness into the light of holiness positionally. And so since God is holy and we are sinners, then we are reconciled. We are made right with God by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. And so God imparts Christ's righteousness to us and he makes us holy and blameless before him. That is our spiritual position. That's what he has declared. That is our position in Christ. And we have been separated from sin and set apart for God. Holy, set apart. Now, personal holiness is a practical holiness that is the outwork and the fruit of our positional holiness. Once he makes us holy, then we begin to work with God. We cooperate with him in learning how to walk out that holiness that he has put in us, that position that he has given us. Our positional holiness is evidenced by the way we think and live. So I have to ask, is the holiness that God has put in me showing up in what I do every day? Is it showing up in my thoughts? Is it showing up in my mouth? Is it showing up in my attitudes, my intentions? You know, we have a personal responsibility to walk out the holiness that has been planted in us. And we cooperate with God in doing that. In order to be holy, I'm responsive to him. I do, I behave in a holy way because he is that rider, I'm the horse, and when he nudges me, I'm going to move toward holiness. God commands us to be holy. It is a serious subject with God. We don't passively wait for God to just douse us with holiness, so just something to just come over us, you know, that makes us mystically and practically holy. No, this is work that we do. It is cooperation with him as we try to keep in, in, with his holiness. You know, maybe we think, um, you know, I really want to be holy, but I keep failing. I, this is impossible. I don't, I don't think I can do this. We'll talk about this more later, but our walk with God requires a daily, moment-by-moment -moment surrender to him. We make the big choice at one point in time to come to Christ for salvation, but then there becomes a daily choice, a moment-by-moment -moment choice of surrendering to Him, of following, to, of following Him, of obeying Him. And so God is looking for men and women who will respond with instant, complete, wholehearted, and joyous obedience. Obedience to God is not to be a list of things that we check off to do. It's to be a lifestyle that we love because we love His holiness. We fear Him. We stand in awe of Him. We, we, we've seen that, and it, we're like, oh, my goodness. And so we're going to respond to Him then each time He speaks, each time He gives that nudge. We must learn how to listen to Him.
how to follow him, how to rely on his power, how to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It is the process of sanctification. That's a big long word, but sanctification is a process that continues from the day we're saved until the day we walk into heaven. It's a process where during that time we grow more and more. We learn better and better at how to obey him. And in that process, we're growing more and more to look like, be like Jesus so that we can show him to the world. The process makes us like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. It's an everyday, long-term, ongoing experience. The Spirit-controlled life is not some um, special deluxe edition of Christianity. There are not just a few people who are chosen to be full of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that you're controlled by Him. That's what it means. So, you know, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have this mark of God on your life is, is not just for a few. It is God's intention. It is God's plan for all of his people. It's what he wants from all of us. So now let's talk about sin. What is sin? I guess in this study, we know the traditional definitions of sin. It's missing the mark and it's um, not obeying God's laws and God's rules. But, but as I looked at this, I thought, you know what sin is? Sin is any thought, any attitude, any behavior, any action that does not measure up to the perfection of the holiness of God. <clears throat> I don't care if it's a little bit off or a whole lot off. It still misses. It's like the old ivory soap commercial where they would talk about ivory soap being 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure. Well, that doesn't get it. You're either pure or you're not pure. And so that's what happens. And so we're not pure because in God's perfection, in his holiness, like Isaiah, when we look at ourselves, no matter how good we think we might look, it's not going to be the shade of white that God is. Christ died to save us from sin. He died to deliver us from sin. He died to get us out of that mess. You know, he died for our sins that we might die to sin because sin is bondage. Sin produces death. And so when Christ comes along, you know, the devil wants you to believe that God doesn't want you to sin because he's trying to keep something from you. He's trying to keep you from having a good time. No, 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 no. God is trying to make us free, to make us powerful, to make us productive as a holy person. You know, we know from Scripture that salvation is all of grace. That is absolute truth. It is unquestionable truth. And we know that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But without denying that, knowing that, Scripture also says that when you are justified, when you are saved, you will be a new creation and you will have a completely different relationship to sin. 
than the relation you had, relationship you had with sin before you were saved. It's not a relationship anymore that's okay with sin. Oh, that's a, you know, that's okay. It's not a relationship that's comfortable tolerating sin. It is a relationship to God that is characterized by one who has no tolerance for sin. Why? Because God has no tolerance for sin. That's why it was important enough to him to send his only son to die to deliver us from the mess. And so there's a hatred for sin that God has. And so we're going to learn to hate sin the way God hates it. And we're going to live a life that is marked by holiness instead of a life that is marked by sinfulness. Get this in your mind. Christ died to keep us from being sinners. Christ died to keep us from being sinners. And, you know, at that place, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, if you want to turn there, that's why Paul says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How can we stand it? How can we tolerate it? Now let's read the first seven verses of Romans 6. Paul is speaking. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. No. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism identified with him into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Since we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, our old self, was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, a new you, a new you that is brought about by the salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, For he who has died is freed. That word means acquitted. He who has died is acquitted from sin. That means in a legal sense, we have been justified. And so if Christ and God in his holiness has done all that to save us from sin, to rescue us from that sin, why do we want to dabble in it? Where are we getting the satisfaction that comes from dabbling in sin? Now, certainly none of us is going to be sinless. It ain't happening. But what we know to do is God has taught us in his word how we're going to deal with it once we become aware of it. And we know that once that happens, then we're going to agree with him about it. We're going to confess it. We're going to quit doing that. We'll talk about that another day. But we're going to be pursuing holiness. We're not going to disregard 
the Lordship of Christ. We're not going to disregard the Holy Spirit within us that is convicting us and working within us and nudging us toward holiness. Holiness is a gift that comes to the believer from God. I cannot earn it. I can do nothing to get it for myself. It is a gift that he gives to us when we become his child. All sin, I don't care if it's a little speck of it or a whole huge bunch of it, all sin is against God and against his holiness. It marks it. It doesn't mark it in the character of God. It marks it in our compromise and the message that we're supposed to be delivering to the world. Now, here's the problem. Most of us have become so familiar with sin, so acclimated with sin, that we don't notice it. We fail to see it. How would that happen? Because we're not focusing on the holiness of God. We're not pursuing the holiness of God. We're just floating along, just rocking along in the world, knowing that, oh, everybody's sin. I'm saved from sin. And so, you know, in our minds, we have done something that God never did. In our minds, we categorize sins as big sins and little sins, or as serious sins or not so serious sins. And so we say that some sins, you know, pretty harmless, white lies, you know, there's some of them out there. And of course, we know that there are some sins that are more destructive to, to society than others, but there is no little sin when it's held up to the holiness of God. It's there. And we, have we may have developed, mm, mm, we may have developed a level of sinfulness in our own lives that we're comfortable with. That's okay. Have we gotten used to the fact that some Christians are unloving and unforgiving? Have we gotten used to the fact that some Christians like to gossip? Have we gotten used to the fact that some Christians are cantankerous and contentious? Have we gotten used to the fact that some Christians enjoy pornography? Look at it this way. Have you ever experienced raw sewage backing up in your house? I'm grateful that I haven't, but I know some people who have. <clears throat> And sometimes that raw sewage will it'll get stopped up down the line somewhere and it'll just go and it'll come out of your bathtub and your faucets and your toilet and it just makes a mess in your house. Raw sewage. Imagine that sewage has overflowed into the hallways and the aisles and even the altar of your church. And you go walking in there one day and the place has got raw sewage everywhere. Would you just walk on by and ignore the problem? Mm -mm. Nope, you would not. Everyone walking in would be horrified. There would be a stench. You would be afraid of the toxicity. You would be afraid of the contamination that might get on you. And so we would find it offensive. We would not continue worship as usual. 
But listen to me. This is on my heart, and this has been convicting for me. The fact is that something far more serious than raw sewage is running through the lives of countless professing Christians, and it's in the church. Most of our evangelical churches are experiencing something worse than raw sewage running through the aisles and at the altar. And for the most part, we're oblivious to that because we've become acclimated to it. We've gotten used to the sin. And so we've decided we, we can get along with that, that much sin. We can, we can tolerate that. You know, God knows everybody does this, so he, he's, you know, he's going to be all, all right about that. I was talking to someone a couple of days ago about the prevalence of pornography in our culture. And the conversation was about the fact that pornography is a huge and significant step towards sex trafficking, which is something that we need to be working on in our communities. And so this man who is called um, into some ministry with sex trafficking victims and had done some study about this told me that it is estimated that 50 to 60% of men are involved in pornography. Now, the figure for women used to be a good bit lower than that, but it is rising and rising so that now the number of women involved in pornography uh, is estimated to be about 50%. And then he said, we have found that there is no difference in the percentage of people involved in pornography in the church and not in the church. Can't tell a difference. Willful, presumptuous, intentional, planned ahead, planned ahead, blatant sin, adultery, abuse, profanity, temper, immodest dress among professing believers and members in good standing of local churches. Then there are the more respectable sins. There's the more respectable sewage that is often overlooked, greed, covetousness, Bitterness, pride, critical spirit, self-centeredness, business tactics, attitude toward neighbor. And sadly, God's church that is intended to be the example of holiness to God, to the world, has become a safe place for sin. So you can be in the church and be safe in your sin. Neither... I am afraid that church neither is a safe place to confess your sin to one another because of our self-righteousness and our pride. You did what? Surely you didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Baloney. Have we fallen for the deception, Satan's deception, 
that says it's okay for Christians to look and think and talk and live like the world? Have we been lulled to sleep by a watered-down, compromised version of Christianity? I think so. And I think that's why the church has no power in the world. Just like a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough, tolerating just a little bit of sin in our lives is like leaven in the whole body of Christ. What does sin do to God? Breaks his heart. Breaks his heart. He sent his son to deliver us from that mess, and yet we still tend to be okay with dabbling in it. And it separates his fellowship with those who loves. Now, I don't, sin is not, if once he has said you can't become unborn, once you have become a child of God, your sin is not going to make you become unborn. But it will surely separate your fellowship from God. You know, I was born to my parents. There's not anything that can change my genetics. They're my parents and I was born to my parents. And that can't be unborn. It can't be undone. But I can live in such a way that I don't have anything to do with my parents. I may be miserable in it, but my fellowship is broken with them. My relationship is not. And so sin breaks God's heart. And God is not going to make himself at home in a place that is unholy. If your home is full of unholy things, if you're watching R-rated movies and reading racy books and you've got tacky magazine, if all of that's in your home, God's not comfortable there unless you let him clean it up. And so he's not going to make himself at home in an unholy place. Lots of places now when you go to a doctor, a physician, <clears throat> or whatever I, I did. I had a bout with breast cancer a few years back, and every time I would go and start the lab work for the chemo, they would say, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is your pain level? Well, fortunately, I very seldom had um, much pain to speak of, and so I was usually a 1. But this prompted my, this thought for me for today. If I gave you a scale of 1 to 10 and I ask you, what is your sin level? What would you say? Well, you know, I, I sin a little bit. You know, I do. Um, man, I'm not anywhere close to being perfect. I'm not like God. I'm not, I don't talk about holiness. I don't pursue holiness. I'm not over there at number, you know, 10 where I'm really after holiness. I, you know, I will give myself a 5. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation in chapter 3 and verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, 
right. Now, this is a church that was deluded by its self-importance. It thought it was okay, thought it had everything together. And God speaks. And he says, the amen, <clears throat> the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. They have not seen the holiness of God. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, be zealous therefore and repent. And to this church, he said this famous verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will dine with him and he with me. We'll have fellowship. How are we going to have fellowship? Because we've dealt with our sin. And it's that cleansed version of us to which he can say, go. Whom shall I send and who will go for me? Let it be me, because I have been cleansed. I have seen your holiness. What does sin do to the devil? It delights him. It makes him very happy, and it advances the kingdom of darkness. We help him, and he's going, yes. We don't want to do that. I guess this is the question that's on my heart through a good part of the series. You know, um, we're in a mess in our country. And the question, you know, we, we often quote 2 Chronicles 7, 14, where God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Ooh, God's people turning from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I guess my question is, to what degree do I want God to heal my land? Or better yet, to what degree do I want God to restore the church. If I really want that, then I'm going to have to do my part in dealing with the sin that is in my life. My thought life, the careless words that come out of my mouth, 
my overindulgences. How do I spend my money? How much chocolate do I eat? What are the things in my life? And, and mine won't be the same as yours. And so what we've got to do is get before the Lord and say, show me your holiness and show me my sin the way you see it. And then we're going to respond like Isaiah and we're going to say, I am undone. I am a whole lot worse than I ever thought I was. Cleanse me, Lord. And once he cleanses the church, he can use the church. Because once again, we will be showing the world what the holiness of God looks like. The love, the mercy, the compassion, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for that this week. And next week, we'll take this a step further. God bless you.